Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, I am joined by Roy Austin. Roy, thank you for being here. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Roy is joining us today to help us revisit police reform. Roy is currently VP and Deputy General Counsel of Civil Rights for Facebook, but has an extensive career in civil rights and in police reform as well. Roy, would you take a moment to just tell us a little bit about your past experience working in this area? Yeah, absolutely, Emily. Yeah, I started as a civil rights prosecutor in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, prosecuting hate crimes and police misconduct around the country. I did that for a few years, and my next job was with a law firm called Kecker and Van Nest at the time. It's Kecker, Van Nest, and Peters now, I believe. But the, the big case I worked on then was a lawsuit against the California Highway Patrol for racial profiling in drug interdiction work. And I actually worked very closely with Michelle Alexander back before she wrote the new Jim Crow on that case. I came back and was a line prosecutor and assistant United States attorney with the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office and did that for a number of years, concentrating on sexual assaults, human trafficking, and domestic homicide work, and then did some fraud and public corruption work. Bounced into the law firm again, then came back out and was one of the deputy assistant attorney generals in the civil rights division. And I was the person who supervised the law enforcement and criminal justice portfolio. And then I went over to the White House, where I was the deputy assistant to President Obama for the Office of Urban Affairs, Justice and Opportunity, where I worked on a number of issues. But policing and criminal justice, a huge piece of that, including the task force on 21st century policing, where I work very closely with those task force members. So that's a quick and dirty of, of yes. my, my background in this space. Yeah, thank you so much, Roy. We're so lucky to have you here with us today to help us just re-examine what's happening with police reform. It's been a tumultuous year. We've seen a lot of movement in police reform, maybe not enough, so let's just talk about what we've seen over the last year. And that's why we've got Roy here with us to help us with that reexamination. So I'd like to ask, let's start with a high level question. You know, there's been a number of reforms across the country and obviously we can't speak to every single reform in every single jurisdiction by any means. But if we could speak on a high level about patterns of reform that we've seen adapted by a large number of states across the country, some of those that stand out to you, what patterns have you seen stand out over this last year since the murder of George Floyd? You know, Emily, to be completely honest with you, I'd say that the pattern that stands out to me is that there isn't a pattern. Is that, you know, we still have about 18,000 police departments or law enforcement agencies around the country. We still have very uneven policing around this country. You have some that have moved toward not dealing as much with low-level offenses. You've had some which have moved away from fees and fines, but you've had some that have doubled down on that exact thing. You've had some that have moved away from kind of the marijuana arrests and prosecutions. We are seeing 
some departments who are adopting some of the reforms recommended by the task force on 21st century policing, but we see a whole lot who just aren't doing anything any differently than they've done year in and year out. And so what I've just seen is just a complete kind of everybody doing whatever it is that they want to do, which is the exact problem that the task force was trying to address in some ways. You know, do you create a floor on use of force that everybody, the same standard, So I think everyone has looked at their policing as a result of the murder of George Floyd. But to say that there's actually been any kind of change across the industry would be a stretch. If I could follow up on something you noted there, standards for the industry is something that we've talked about on this podcast in past conversations. Referring to the task force, what has been the impact of the report put forward by that task force? Was its goal to help set standards for the industry? It still exists, correct? It still exists. What, yeah, so. Yeah, it still exists. We were making great strides. And I want to be clear that the strides were being made, you know, your IACPs and your major cities chiefs, your nobles, the police unions. I mean, what we had put together there put some momentum behind an idea that we have to, at at a minimum, professionalize policing. And that was a task force that was made up of everything from some of the most respected chiefs in the country to some of the most respected activists to some of the most respected academics. I mean, it covered the gamut there and some great recommendations. And then we had the change in administrations, and they just threw that away. And didn't throw it away because there was anything wrong with it, but threw it away because it was something that President Obama had worked on. And there's this just this insistence on if President Obama worked on it, we're not going to keep it. There was no analysis that said that it was problematic. And so all of that momentum was lost. And you still had a couple jurisdictions that decided to keep doing this stuff because it made sense. But again, we just have this kind of mess right now where there's been this push and pull to police departments and no real guidance uniform guidance as to where we should go. And I got to tell you, the task force of 21st century policing recommendations were a floor. I mean, there was so much more that could have been done. It was a floor that to this day, I strongly believe is where we should be starting any of these discussions. Thank you for that. So speaking of change of administration and the lead that an administration can take in something like this, former President Trump did put forward an executive order in response to the murder of George Floyd, safe policing for safe communities. What impact has that had over the last year? Zero beyond emboldening some of the worst instincts in policing. There were a couple of things in there that were of value, but they didn't move anything on them. It's like, if you look at the First Step Act, I mean, the First Step Act was something that that they touted, but they never put the money and the resources behind the stuff that, I mean, It's one thing to say we're going to change reentry, but if we don't put money and resources behind reentry, we're not changing anything. It was the same thing behind this proposal. And don't forget that they threw out their own kind of proposal on policing, which was really awful, which the judge actually said, you didn't go through a process, you didn't follow FACA. And so you go ahead, you can publish it. But the whole idea of that was to undermine the task force on 21st century policing. So we're in this crazy place right now, where again, everyone's just doing their own thing, which is completely silly, completely detrimental to public safety. 
And we got to figure out who can actually lead on this effort and move us forward in a reasonable, sensible, data-driven direction. Yeah. So clearly the message is there's a lot that needs to be done still. And I, I think that there are many that are echoing what you've been saying, at least from the conversations that I've participated in on this podcast, where there's certainly a, a shared feeling of a need for these standards that you're speaking to. So let's talk about some high level reforms that have been in headlines and that we've seen come up across the nation. We've seen things like jurisdictions limit use of force. I know here in DC where our section is located, the Metropolitan Police at least have been limited in what means of force they can use to even control a crowd. And again, use of force was an issue we saw with George Floyd, of course. So use of force, limitations, around traffic stops, reduction of fines, different things like that. Are these in effect doing what advocates have hoped for? I mean, it is fairly early to make these sort of assessments, but what are your thoughts on these? Yeah, so the first thing that I always say in this space is that our criminal justice data is awful, like really and truly horrendous. And so we would love to see, A, if reforms were being put in place, and B, whether reforms were working. We have no way of doing so because the data is so bad. The data is late. The data is inaccurate. The data is really, in many respects, useless. So first, we have to figure out what jurisdictions are actually doing. And a lot of people have put some words on a page and have said, we've changed our use of force standards. But I have no idea how to evaluate that as someone sitting on the outside. I have no idea if they're evaluating that from the inside or if basically they're just waiting things out. They're just like, okay, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, everyone's protesting. Let's put some words on a page and whether or not we actually make changes. So to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know whether or not new use of force standards are resulting in lower uses of force. I don't know, again, because our data is so bad, if we have more or fewer police killings this year. That's something I should look up. But you know where you look that up is you look that up in your local newspaper. You see if the Washington Post or the Guardian has done an update on that, as opposed to where it really should be is the FBI in their CJIS report should be putting out pretty much day by day, whether or not you have a law enforcement involved killing. And at the same time, day by day, whether you have an officer who's killed in the line of duty. So You know, fines and fees is another one where the ask was that police departments don't fund their agencies on the back of poor people through silly fines that they can't pay. And then when they don't pay them, you know, this cycle that gets them more enmeshed in the criminal justice system. And so honestly, I come to you saying, I don't know. And the, and the fact that I don't know is a huge problem because I pay attention to this stuff. I work very closely on this. We just did a series of papers from the Council on Criminal Justice. I am really proud of that work. Again, task force created of chiefs and activists and academics. And we put out these short papers that talk about these issues, issue by issue. And at the end of the day, the biggest message was that our data is so bad, we don't know what works. We don't know what's happening. And someone has got to put their foot down and say, look, we've got to do better on the data side if we are actually going to get answers to these questions. Yeah. So it makes me wonder... When we talk about either reallocating funds that traditionally go to police departments or defunding, as has been a popular refrain, 
where does the funding need to come from and where does it need to go to get that kind of data collection that's needed? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, let me be very, very clear. I'm not a fan of the defund idea, the movement, the terminology. A bunch of people say defund and say, oh, we're just talking about reallocate. Well, the words have meaning. It's not a word that I use because I rely on police for my personal safety. As a former prosecutor, I know the need for police to be there for the worst crimes. You're not sending a social worker in to a lot of these situations. You need the brave men and women who do policing to be willing to do that stuff. But I think there is a real argument that police spend too much time doing things that really others can do. And whether that's general traffic enforcement or just handling an accident, whether that is marijuana, whether, whatever it is, the bottom line, if you look year after year, regardless of the presidential administration, we have a closure rate of around 60% on homicides. Okay, that's a D minus. That's a D minus on the single most significant crime that we're having. And if you look below that and you look at rapes and sexual assaults, if you look at aggravated assaults, our closure rates are tiny. And that's where the problem is that our police aren't doing the things that really we need them concentrating on. So the problem is, is that we've had this defund conversation and it hasn't happened. The reallocation hasn't happened because when people start looking deeper into these police budgets, what they're finding is the vast majority of the money is just straight up salaries or pensions or things that people are not willing to do away with. But we pour this money into this system and where we fail to pour money into is our educational system, where we fail to pour money into is our healthcare system. And we fail to put money into really grabbing the data to look for better ways. You know, the sheriff's offices always talk about being the number one mental health provider in their communities. Well, that's crazy. You're not providing serious mental health care in a prison or jail. That's not the place for that kind of work to be done. So we don't have numbers. And I saw there was a recent article or op-ed by Bill Bratton talking about how the defund movement is the cause for the rising crime. Well, you can't say that. And the bottom line is that really hasn't been any funding of the police. And so... Again, if we have better and more accurate numbers, we can at least be having a debate that makes sense as opposed to this pure kind of silly rhetoric that one side wants to destroy policing and the other side just wants to kill everybody, where in fact, what we have to have is a nuanced approach to these things. And we need to pass some federal legislation in this space. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your candor there. And I, as a communicator, completely agree with you. Words matter. With defunding, I, I have felt a similar response to, well, what we really mean is the words yeah. do matter. Yeah. So thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate that. Now, you've kind of already spoken to this, so forgive me if this feels repetitive, but I'd like to ask a specific question because I think that it's important to all of us. We're still looking back at the Capitol riot and many of us still have questions about what happened. And many of those questions can't be answered for reasons of, you know, it's the Capitol Police and, you know, their Freedom of Information Act exempt, which makes sense. We don't want bad actors to be able to have access to all that information. But if we're looking at general reforms that we saw and using the DC police as an example of potentially what may have been in play within the Capitol Police, if there were restrictions placed on use of force. We just, we wanna look at meaningful reform 
the criminal justice section, I should say, certainly is one that is eager to see reform happen, meaningful reform. And I'm just curious to know, when we look at that, we obviously saw a lot of things that were troubling on January 6th. But one of those lingering questions is, how did this happen? And that's been one of those questions that just seems to be hanging in the air. And Congress is looking into that as well. But the use of force. I just am curious what your thoughts are. I'm, I don't expect you to have a crystal ball, or, but as someone from the outside, like myself, or you know, our listeners from the outside looking in, making sense of that day, we had concerns over racial bias potentially, but also use of force. Like, why did it take so long to contain? And we did have an episode where we spoke to the concerns around racial bias. So I would like to hear your input. If we're just talking about use of force reform, and looking at January 6th, and let's say you're someone who just has the question of, was use of force restrictions a reason why it took so long to quell the riot? What would you say to that? Or would you disagree? Which is fair. Feel free to disagree with it, of course. Yeah. No. Well, first of all, we, we are in silly season where you have people who are saying we don't need to do a, a full investigation of what happened. We really need a full and complete investigation of what happened on January 6th to better understand it. It is obvious that there was something very different about what happened in January 6th than some of the confrontations that happened in the post-George Floyd protests, which were, according to the data that I've seen, you know, high 90% peaceful. And the times when police kind of actually exacerbated the violence by their reaction to it. You also had an overwhelmed police department there. The Capitol Police were overwhelmed. And the fact that they did not get reinforcements as quickly as one might have expected is another question here. But the fact that what they anticipated with a largely white crowd versus what they anticipated with the George Floyd crowd is something that needs to be investigated and looked at and thought about. But And, and now you have the fact that you know the one person uh, unfortunately lost her life due to gunfire as she was invading the Capitol itself, breaking into a place that had been barricaded. And now you have people questioning whether or not that use of force was appropriate or proper. Is insane to me where those same people will defend uses of force against, you know, Sandra Bland, against Eric Garner, against George Floyd. So, you know, we need to do a fuller investigation. What happened was clearly wrong, was criminal, was something which you know we can't have happen again because it was a direct assault on our democracy and truly a direct assault on our democracy and so i'm looking for answers just like everybody else is but you know it starts off with this was a problem this should have never happened this should have never gotten to this point what do we do to prevent this from ever happening again and we need to have the investigation to answer those questions yeah so roy there's still a lot of questions and more information needed, like we've been talking about. So where do we go from here? Are we changing the criminal justice system in meaningful ways that can lead us to a more equitable system? Well, what would you like to leave with our listeners? We're not yet. We're not yet. And we need to. We need to. You know, I'm working with a program called ABLE, Assisted Bystandership for Law Enforcement, that is showing some real promise and some real take up. Look, we have to law enforcement officers have to recognize 
the importance of their relationship with the community, the importance of being transparent, the importance of data. If they're going to make the argument that we need to be doing more with respect to giving them the ability to make arrests and to police the way they want to, that case has not been made strongly enough. Look, community wants, in my mind, community wants police who they can trust, who they can believe in, who are transparent about what they're doing, who are keeping them safe. That's what communities want. And the problem is, is that we have these two sides that are refusing to have a reasonable discussion about how do we meet? How do we make it so that the police officer goes home safely at the end of their shift and the individual isn't being wrongly arrested or arrested more likely because of their race? We're not having that discussion. And I hope I hope that somehow or another, we are able to bring these sides together and have a rational discussion. Though I gotta tell you, right now, rational discussions are not something that's happening a lot in this country. We're dealing with so much misinformation and disinformation and just people who are saying things to maintain power and authority as opposed to speaking the truth. But I don't know how we get there, but I really hope we do for the sake of all of us because Again, public safety to me is the single most important thing that all of us need and all of us need from our government. And right now we're at a point where some of our institutions are really struggling to have credibility. So I hope we do better. I hope we start looking at the data. I hope we start gathering the data. I hope the two sides, because unfortunately that's how it feels. I hope the two sides sit down and have a reasonable, rational conversation about this important topic. Thank you, Roy. Again, listeners, this is Roy Austin, VP and Deputy General Counsel of Civil Rights with Facebook. So Roy, thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. Thank you.